Welcome to Cross Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. This week, we're on our DC podcast studio where I'm joined by PwC's international tax policy leader and current Washington National Tax Services partner, Pat Brown. Pat, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. Good to be here. So last edition of the podcast, we spent a bunch of time talking with Tim Anson about the 245 Cap A regulations. Prior to that podcast, we talked a little bit about the proposed and final regs with respect to the Section 78 gross up and whether that qualifies for the 245 Cap A. Right. Prior to those podcasts, we've talked about a number of other reg packages. When it comes from guilty, we're waiting for other final reg packages. Well, one of the constant questions that I'm getting from a lot of our partners as well as our clients are about validity of regulations and whether some of these different reg packages, whether proposed and then obviously ultimately final and then temporary regulations, and are these regulations actually valid? Right. Do taxpayers need to actually follow these rules? Right. And without diving into any of the specifics into a particular topic, right. you have a very unique background given <laughs> that you've joined PwC about six months ago. Before that, you were the VP of Tax and Director of Tax Policy at GE. And before that, you were the Associate International Tax Counsel at Treasury. Right. And so I'd like to just shed a little light on understanding when can a reg be invalid. Right. Understanding a little about the Administrative Procedure Act. Yep. There's a Supreme Court case with so Chevron. Right. But really also dive into understanding, you know, what's Treasury's perspective as as they're thinking about writing regs. And I appreciate you've been out of Treasury for a long time. Right, right. And then uh, what's the in-house perspective? What are clients and what are taxpayers thinking about when they are thinking about whether they would want to take a position. And then I can obviously share some of my insight and you can share some of your insights as, as an advisor. Right. Sure. Sure. Well, there's a lot of grist for the mill there, obviously. So I think maybe to start, you know, to talk about, well, why might a regulation be regarded as invalid? Um, and I think, you know, broadly speaking, you can, can divide that into sort of two categories. You know, one, a regulation be, can be considered invalid because Treasury didn't follow the rules associated with with uh, promulgating regulations. And that's where you get into things like the Administrative Procedure Act. And I'm the first to tell you I'm not an expert on the mm -hmm. Administrative Procedure Act. Um, but essentially what it requires the government to do is to tick certain boxes around the procedures, hence the name Administrative Procedure Act. So this really relates to providing taxpayers notice and an opportunity to comment on regulations. Uh, and frankly, from Treasury's perspective, one of the things that Treasury is required to do to comply with the APA is give an indication of the thought process that they've provided with respect to those comments. So it's not sufficient that you give an opportunity to comment from Treasury's perspective if you simply ignore all the comments that come in and say, well, you know, yeah, I got the comments. And so you had an opportunity to comment, but, I, you know, I ignored them all. Um, so one of the things that's really interesting about that for people like you and me that have been practicing tax law for a little while, if you go back 30, 40, 50 years ago and you pull old preambles, uh, they were much shorter right. than they are today. In some cases, they might have only been a couple of pages, right? Um, what you see now, of course, is that um, 
the preambles to regulations are much, much longer. Uh, I actually think that's a really healthy development mm -hmm. in terms of the regulation process because really what it does is it forces the government to provide taxpayers with much more of an indication of its thought process. You know, how did we think about these comments? What are the sort of the issues that we took into account? That's really helpful for taxpayers. It's also really helpful for practitioners like you and me who are trying to advise clients in terms of what these regulations mean. So, so notice and comment is the way I think about kind of the things that are kind of the guiding principles under, lying underneath the APA. And those are the things that the government has to do. Now, of course, in the context of a temporary regulation, the regulation comes out and it's immediately or retroactively effective. So... Let's talk about notice and opportunity for common in that context. Well, you know, it literally doesn't exist. Well, not surprisingly, that doesn't mean that a regulation is always invalid if it's issued as a temporary regulation. There are exceptions to the APA, and they relate to things around, like, things like good cause. Is there mm -hmm. a good cause for the government to issue this thing with immediate effect? Uh, and in the case of, of the 245 Cap A regs, you'll see actually there's a provision, there are a series of uh, discussions in the preamble that relate to how the government has interpreted good cause in this context and why the government believes the good cause standard is met here. Um, so that's when I, when I think about kind of the procedural reasons why a regulation can be declared invalid by a court. And obviously, this would be a, through a judicial, a judicial proceeding, right? So if you want a reg to be, if you, the taxpayer, believe a reg is invalid, you're going to take the government to court. Uh, you or another taxpayer is going to take the government to court, and there will be a judicial proceeding that will determine whether or not the regulation is invalid. Uh, uh, so, so that's on the procedural side. And an example of that, before we move on past yep. the procedural side, is, has been the Altera case. Absolutely. Right? That's obviously outside the scope of this particular discussion. In fact, yes. we have another podcast called TP Talks where they've actually dove into some of those specifics on the Altera case. Right. But fundamentally, the issue with the Altera case was whether they did the they they actually took into account the comments yes. that were provided by taxpayers with respect to a specific regulation under 480-482. Yes. Yes. And actually, you know, Altera is obviously a very recent case. And so just frankly, over the last couple of years, what you have seen is in response, I think, at least partly in response to Altera, again, preambles getting longer, more and more discussion uh, in the preamble of comments and Treasury's response to those comments. So, again, I think that's a healthy development. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does mean that, you know, we're likely to see increasingly very few regulation packages that are less than 100 pages, you know, when they come out, uh, because all of this discussion is now really a part of the process. And, and again, I think a healthy part of the process. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions that I have, I, I've noticed as some of these, particularly as we've gotten some of the final regulations, there is a lot of time spent explaining why they did not respond or actually change or right. agree to comments that were provided by, by taxpayers. In fact, yeah. just a lot of, of words and pages just saying, hey, we got this comment. Here's why we're not following yes. it. Yes, yes, yes. And, and obviously, I guess if you make the comment and your comment is not adopted, then maybe it's cold comfort that the government is forced to explain why they didn't adopt it. But I, I think it's helpful for, again, the broader practitioner community. Uh, at large and taxpayers at large to have that. So, so that's really on the on the you know the procedural side. On the substantive side, of course, the government can tick all the right boxes and procedures and still put out a regulation that's not valid. And why might it be in, invalid? Well, let's take a really extreme example. Let's assume that the government tried to put out a regulation that said, you know, the corporate tax rate is not notwithstanding that Congress said the corporate tax rate is twenty one percent. We Treasury believe the corporate tax rate should be twenty three percent. And so we're going to put out a regulation that says 
now from going forward, the corporate tax rate is at uh, is at twenty three percent. Even if that went out as a proposed regulation, and they invited comments, and they appropriately responded to all the comments and complied with all aspects of the APA, I think there are very few practitioners who would suggest that that is a valid regulation. That that is within Treasury's authority to change the law with respect to something like the corporate tax rate. Um, so obviously, you know that's that's at a very extreme example. But in this space, generally, what practitioners talk about, and again, this is funny thinking about, you know, my experience as a tax practitioner, your experience as a tax practitioner. I remember going back to when I was in law school, people talking about this thing that I didn't really understand at the time called Chevron deference. And all of the law review articles that already had been written on, you know, the standard of Chevron deference. Chevron obviously is a U.S. company. And in this case, it refers to a case where the Supreme Court really set out, you know, what level of deference should be given to an administrative agency's interpretation of a congressionally enacted statute, what what level of deference should be given by a court and what level of deference should be given by stakeholders. Uh, and so there's been this sort of raging debate reflected in countless law review articles and, and other pronouncements. And it's still a very live issue today. And obviously, you have you know changes in the court, uh, in the Supreme Court, that you know may very well impact the way you know the justices think about these issues when future cases uh, are litigated and, and appear before the Supreme Court. But ultimately, this is the fundamental question around substantive validity, which is how much deference should we, the courts, and should taxpayers give to the IRS and Treasury's interpretation of what Congress has done. And, you know, people talk about this in sort of high-level terms of, well, you know, Treasury can fill in the gaps around things that Congress hasn't hasn't said, hasn't spoken clearly on. And so one of the areas that I think about, going back to kind of my practice in earlier years, you know, you think about how financial products really exploded and the you know proliferation and the variety of financial products over the particularly in the 1990s mm-hmm. and you know early 2000s um, treasury really needed to write regulations in that space because the developments were happening so fast and really what they needed to do was apply the concepts in the code to a whole new set of products where there were a ton of questions that were being raised by taxpayers saying, I don't know how to treat this for tax purposes. I've got guidance that tells me what to do if it's X and what to do if it's Y, but this is sort of in between. And, you know, there are all sorts of analogies that people use. Well, is it more like insurance? Is it more like right. a debt instrument? And and all of these things, of course, have, you know, they can kind of fold into one another. So, so that's a space where Treasury was clearly sort of filling in the gaps, right? Um, and then there are other cases, and this is one where I think 245 Cap A and the regs in that space, the temporary regs that were just issued, are more in the space of, well, Congress may have said something in the statute, but it seems like the statute doesn't reflect what Congress must have intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because the statute, the statutory language doesn't reflect what Congress clearly must have intended, there's a glitch. There's a gap. There's something there that we need to fix. So it's really more, it's not so much in the area of, and I probably shouldn't have used the word gap, it's not so much in the area of it's unclear how the law applies right. in this circumstance. Yep. It's really rather there's a clear statement in the law, but it just doesn't re- reflect what we what we honestly believe Congress must have intended in this space, and therefore we're going to correct that through regulation. And that obviously does raise a different set of questions. How far does Treasury's authority go in that context? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Treasury's perspective and then Treasury's authority, because there are some particular code sections that 
where Congress has given Treasury specific authority, and then I think they also have some general uh, authority. Can you talk about the sure. the difference between those two? And then I appreciate that you were in Treasury, you know, several moons yeah. <laughs> ago, but uh, and that obviously a completely different group of folks at, at Treasury today. Right. But maybe start with. You know, how does Congress give Treasury authority and sure. then what's Treasury's perspective as they're trying to, to draft these regulations? Because it's it's a difficult task, particularly yeah. with the TCJA. Yes, yes. And, and obviously, one of the things that we all know about the TCJA is it came together very quickly. There wasn't an opportunity for taxpayers to, you know, have hearings and, and, and go in front of the committees, uh, the Finance Committee or the Ways and Means Committee, and really provide the level of guidance and feedback. And that was obviously, you know, that was deliberate on the part of Congress and deliberate on the part of the administration to move the tax reform legislation through as quickly as possible. It was right. a strong desire to really reduce the corporate rate rapidly. The business community obviously welcomes that, um, but make these other changes as well. And I think, you know, in the kind of, you know, realpolitik world, uh, there were real concerns that tax reform could collapse under its own weight if it wasn't kept moving very, very, very quickly. Right. So. Yep. So, you know, that's one of the things that you face now is this all happened very quickly and now people are left with, well, what just happened and how do we think about it? So, but in precisely to the answer to your question, you know, in general, Congress grants authority a lot of times in specific statutory provisions. Sometimes when they do that, that, that grant of authority will simply say, hey, you know, we grant Treasury authority, you know, to write rules, uh, you know, to write all necessary regulations to f carry out the purposes of this provision or right. to carry out the, you know, the, the whatever, this provision, you know. Uh, and obviously it's phrased, can be phrased in a lot of different ways. Um, there's also a general grant of authority to the Treasury Department under Section 7805 of the, of the Internal Revenue Code, and that is to write all, I think it's needful rules and regulations. Needful, I think, is the word, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and, you know, that's obviously a broad grant of authority, and it's generally been interpreted broadly um, by courts. But again, you get back into this question of, okay, well, how broad does that go? Is that about filling in gaps? Or is it about, you know, fixing things where we think, well, I know that's what the statute says, but, but Congress clearly didn't mean what they literally said, and so we, we have an obligation to fix this. I think most people who are, you know, deep students of this area would say, where there is a specific grant of authority in a specific statutory provision, maybe that gives Treasury a little bit more latitude than if they're simply relying on Section 7805. But Section 7805, to be clear, covers the entire title. That is right. the Internal Revenue Code. So, you know, and it's there for a reason. And so, you know, often what you will see, and I would say in virtually all cases, what you will see when Treasury puts out uh, uh, regulations, there's always a description in the preamble of what Treasury's authority is. And typically what you will see is if there is a specific grant of authority in a specific section, that specific grant of authority will be cited. But nearly always, very, very frequently at least, Section 7805 is also cited. So we also, you know, just to remind folks, hey, we have authority under, under Title 26 uh, to write these rules. Uh, and uh, and and we're relying on that authority. And by the way, Congress has even given us greater authority uh, in a specific statutory provision. And of course, if there's a specific grant in a specific statutory provision, very often that would be accompanied, as is as was the case a lot of times in the TCJA, with some legislative history that would give some further content to what 
what Treasury's authority is. Now, that's a double-edged sword from Treasury's perspective, of course, because the legislative history, sort of on the one hand, it's Congress clearly saying, by the way, we gave Treasury authority here. But very often, Congress will do things like say, for example, this authority is intended to deal with things like the following. And people will read that and say, well, I know it says, for example, but it doesn't suggest anything about the regulations that you actually wrote. So is your authority really that broad? Because you sort of took that grant of authority and boy, you really ran with it. Um, So you obviously see those sorts of discussions happening as well. Yeah. And particularly with the TCJA, I found it very interesting because we we have the legislative history, which we've spoken a lot about, particularly as we think about guilty as a minimum tax, which is the example that, that I like to bring. And there are a number of other examples where maybe the legislative history didn't accurately portray Congress's intent or maybe that necessarily maybe that's too strong. The the rules didn't necessarily aren't consistent with what we saw in the legislative history. And so I think that creates a a, a confusion and difficulty for Treasury to, to try to write rules. And then we have the Joint Committee of Taxation nonpartisan, right. independent group between the Senate and, and the House, and we got their report, right. and then a, a laundry list of technical corrections, Yes, which leads me to believe that those particular statutes were, you know, just fundamentally wrong so that they need to be corrected, right. and right. then, you know, Treasury potentially issuing regulations to correct those statutory corrections. Right. And I, I think it's just it's a very difficult task for, for, for Treasury to try to write rules. And I think a lot of it, to your point, is just this went through so quickly yeah. that there just wasn't the, the, the history and, you know, some of the thinking that, that was done. Yeah. And I look, I think I think from the Treasury Department's perspective, I say two things. One is, you know, Everyone should recognize these guys are operating in good faith. They're trying to figure out what their authority is. Um, there is a robust process. There was when I was in the Treasury Department. As I understand it, it's, if anything, even more robust today for actually clearing regulations through the Treasury built building and through the IRS. So the regulations have to be formally signed off by the chief counsel uh, and by either the Secretary of the Treasury, or very often is his delegate. So it would be somebody, it could be the Deputy Secretary, it could be the Assistant Secretary for Tax Policy, but they have to be signed off at a senior level. They also have to be approved by the General Counsel of the Treasury Department, who is obviously a lawyer, not a tax professional, but a lawyer who is very specifically looking at these questions of authority. Does this regulation comport with congressional intent? Is it a, a, a valid exercise of Treasury's authority or not? And so there's a robust process that is followed in good faith by folks within the building trying to figure out, you know, what's the right answer here based on everything that we know. Um, but, you know, it's also worth recognizing these folks are human beings, right? And in a lot of cases, you know, they, they are, their judgment may be affected by information that they picked up from being part of the process as the legislation was going through, right? So they they sat in meetings with staff and they talked about what was intended with a particular provision. Uh, And by staff, I mean congressional staff, you know, as this was all coming together very quickly. And so, you know, how much of that um, do they overtly take into account? How much of it, you know, at a subconscious level affects the way they think about the purposes of the provision? Say, well, this clearly is the wrong answer and we need to address it. You mentioned technical corrections. Again, it's sort of a double-edged sword in this space. Well, if if folks who are who were the principals, you know, the then chairman of the Ways and Means Committee or folks on the Senate Finance Committee uh, are coming forward and saying, hey, this requires a technical correction to fix it because this isn't what we meant, 
on the one hand, Treasury, you know, Treasury staff may look at that and say, well, we, should, we need to do something about this because it's clearly inconsistent with what Congress intended. Of course, some folks would look at a draft technical correction bill and say, well, maybe, it may, maybe it's not what Congress intended, but Congress is also signaling that they think they need to fix it and that, and that you guys shouldn't fix it. So, you know, you again see sort of these sort of raging debates uh, that happen. And I, again, it's a combination, I think, of people trying to operate in good faith, having, having a set of information that not all of which is, is uh, are we on the outside privy to in terms of the way of the way the, the guidance came together, the way the law came together. Um, I think the last thing I would say in this space, and, and I by no means mean, mean this as a criticism, I was as much a part of this as, as anyone when I was at Treasury. You do have this sense, uh, most folks within Treasury have this sense that, you know, it's their job to protect the uh, the system, the tax system. Uh, and that's not necessarily do people interpret that people within Treasury interpret that as our job is to make sure we make every decision that maximizes revenue for the government. They don't approach it from that perspective. Um, they approach it from the perspective of we're sort of the guardians of the system, you know, but for us kind of chaos, you know, reigns. And that's a that's a bad outcome. And so given that Congress sometimes does struggle to act in a hyperpartisan environment, maybe we, the Treasury, really do need to step in here um, and take an action. And in some cases, I don't, again, I don't think anybody puts out a regulation that they don't in good faith believe um, may be found valid, although there may be questions about that and they may not be sure. Uh, but nobody's putting out a regulation to think, well, there's no way this is valid. Let's, let's just do it anyway. Uh, but there's, there is an element, I think. I know when I was in the building, there, there is an element of, hey, let's, you know, to use a football analogy, we got to get this out there because we got to freeze the safeties. You know, if we put something out and we believe it may be valid, even if it's ultimately found invalid, um, you know, we can put a stop to people going crazy with certain transactions that we really don't think should be valid, we shouldn't be allowed. And so I think some of that may influence the thinking as well. Again, I can't speak for anybody in the right, building yeah. today on any of this stuff, but I know the, the, the atmosphere that folks were in, you really did, I really did feel acutely this sense of, I have a job here that's been given to me to try and protect the system. Again, that's not a revenue maximization goal. It's really the integrity of the system has been handed to me. I'm the steward of this. Uh, and that influences, it certainly influenced the way I thought about what what my authority was, what Treasury's authority was to promulgate regulations. What are the factors that Treasury might consider in determining, you talked a little bit about this earlier, but in issuing a proposed reg versus issuing a temporary reg. And we know that final regulations needed to be issued within 18 months of the statute to be able to have retroactive effect. But right. What is, I mean, maybe historically the difference between the proposed and, and temporary rules, then obviously after they're proposed, they become final. And I think temporary, is it three years yes. That, that, yes. that they exist before they either need yeah. to be reproposed or, right. or finalized? Right. They so-called sunset after three years. If they're, if they're not issued in final form, um, a temporary regulation would sunset after three years. So, uh, you know, that's sort of a fascinating question, and I'm talking a little bit out of school here, but uh, one of the people I used to work for in the Treasury Department was Pam Olson, of course, is a partner here at PwC. Uh, and uh, I recall having a meeting with Pam Olson when I, I had started with Treasury in the Clinton administration, uh, and Pam came in when, uh, at, you know, the 
initially the deputy assistant secretary uh, in the George W. Bush administration. So I had to brief a uh, regulation to her that I wanted to put out as temporary regulation. I thought this was a highly abusive situation. Uh, we needed to get it out as a temporary regulation. You know, Pam's mindset uh, as a as in, and Pam had done a stint at the IRS previously and then gone back into private practice and then come back into Treasury. Um, Pam's mindset on this was very much, look, you know what we need to do as government officials? We need to put out regulations uh, as proposed regulations and invite taxpayer comment. Uh, and uh, so we um, we put out our we walked into the uh, myself and another guy. We walked into Pam's office to say, hey. Yeah, we agree with that in general. There's an exception here. Go through all this whole process. And Pam listened very, you know, politely, as Pam obviously would do. And essentially, at the end of it said, no, you know, because, you know, the importance of notice and comment is really what needs to guide us here. And the bar in her mind for putting out a temporary regulation was extraordinarily high. A long way of saying, Doug, I think it depends. Those sorts of decisions depend a lot on the particular individuals who are the decision makers within the building. Um, and I think, depending, obviously, you know, you tend to see a temporary regulation in really exigent, what wh- whoever is making the call there regards as really exigent circumstances. So you see it because this is an abusive situation that we need to address, or there's a, you know, potentially crisis here, you know, so you might see this sort of guidance. In fact, Treasury did some of this stuff by notice during the financial crisis to, to address issues, to try and uh, create um, remove some friction in the system mm-hmm. during the financial crisis. So not even by temporary, just a notice saying, hey, we're putting something out telling you we intend to get guidance out, but you can start relying on it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so you tend to see it in that context, but it's very much in the eye of the beholder. Uh, you know, when is temporary appropriate? Well, it's appropriate when I believe it's appropriate if I'm the decision maker here and people are going to make different judgments. Yeah, one of the questions that I had with respect to the temporary nature of the 245 Cap A reg, for example, was, you know, trying was it was it the intention of Treasury to get that out within 18 months of the TCJA, so to, right. to be able to have the the retroactive effect? Because obviously a proposed rule was was not issued, and so maybe there wasn't time for comment. Yeah, but. yeah, and that's an interesting point, Doug. I'm glad you I'm glad you raised it because Treasury does have authority under Section 7805 in cases that, that they um, determine to be abusive to issue regulations that are retroactively effective. What's interesting in 245 Cap A, I, th- I believe I'm correct about this, is they do not cite to their authority in 7805 for abuse situations. They put out a temporary regulation within the 18-month window and make it effective, essentially retroactively, back to back to the date of the statute or back to the end of 2017. Um, but uh, they don't cite to this anti-abuse authority, as I recall, uh, in, in putting that regulation out, which I do regard as interesting. I mean, I, th- I do think, yes, the timing of this and the temporary nature of this was definitely to sort of get within, seems like it was definitely to get within that 18-month window. They had another avenue potentially open to them to to make it retroact- retroactively effective and chose not to do that, which, I, again, I think is sort of interesting. I have no insight as to why. Right. Yeah. So let's maybe, maybe I'll ask you to take off your treasury hat and uh, put on the, the taxpayer slash client hat. Yep. You know, if you are, because you've been at PwC for six months, but you know, if you if you think about your your time, you know, in uh, in industry, right? What what is the thought process that VPs of tax, tax directors, even CFOs yeah. should consider when wanting to potentially take a position that that a right. regulation is is invalid? 
Well, to start with, I would say it's not for the faint of heart, right? Because essentially what you're, you know, your analogies are always imperfect, imprecise, but, you know, you're essentially walking up to a big kid in the schoolyard and shoving them and saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I think you're wrong and I'm intending to take you on. When you, when you believe a regulation is invalid, you need to disclose to the government on your, on your return that you're taking a position on your return that is inconsistent with, with a regulation. Uh, so there's no hiding it from the government. You have to disclose it. Uh, and that means, obviously, that the government put out a regulation they believe is valid. So you can fully expect that this is going to result in controversy, ultimately litigation. I think, I think your expectation going in has to be, I'm gonna, if I'm going to take a position that is at odds with a Treasury regulation, I'm going to end up litigating this position. I may not end up litigating this position because the government may take another case instead of my case and choose to litigate that. Uh, but they obviously are unlikely to choose to settle my situation or or give it a pass if they're. But I may not be the case that they choose to take for whatever reason. So, um, I would say, uh, you know, again, you know, not for the faint of heart. Be aware that you're walking into controversy. Uh, and be aware that, you know, controversy is a protracted process. It's going to take a significant period of time. Um, it's public. Uh, and so, therefore, it's not just that, you know, it'll be visible as it will be to your shareholders, to the analysts who follow your company. It'll obviously be available as well, or, you know, to folks in the general press. So you can expect, you know, that, that you may see stories around that. Uh, are there reputational concerns? You know, do you believe the Treasury has issued a regulation that you think goes beyond their authority, but you're not particularly eager to describe a transaction that you may have engaged in uh, because maybe that transaction, you know, through a particular lens would look to be a, you know, too cute by half result or something like that. So I think you need to think about those sorts of factors. Um, and one of the things that I know from my experience in industry is when you have controversy, uh, you know, ongoing controversy uh, with the government in a tax area. Uh, one of the things you can expect is every time you do your quarterly earnings, you're going to get asked about it. Every single time it's going to be a topic of discussion. Now, maybe the numbers are immaterial, but assuming the numbers are not immaterial, it's going to be asked about every single quarter. So, as and, a, and that point is, is that once it's disclosed, assuming that it's disclosed on financial statements, so it needs to be disclosed right. on the tax return, correct? Right, and then obviously depending on level of confidence right. and thinking about Fin Forty Eight, whether right. something needs to be disclosed on the financial statements. Yeah. And I think your point is, is that once and if that is disclosed on the financial statements, and oftentimes the magnitude of some of these are sure. so big that you know companies want to be conservative and disclose from a financial statement perspective. Well, yes. then that's just going to invite questions. Yes, yes. And look, most companies, if they're if they're going down the path towards litigation, are almost certainly from a financial statement slash investor relations perspective, gonna want to get ahead of that issue. So you always want to, in the from the company's perspective, be telling your story rather than reacting to somebody else telling it first. So I'm gonna get out, you know, we are, you know, we've taken a position that's contrary to, to this regulation. You know, the government has indicated that, you know, they expect to litigate this position against us. We believe we're correct. We either have or have not established reserves around this position. You know, obviously the analysis is whether or not you need a reserve is, is governed by the accounting rules in FIN 48. I will say it always feels a lot better having those discussions uh, with your stakeholders, with shareholders, with with uh, with your analysts, if you can say we have reserves right. <laughs> associated sure. with this, uh, that's obviously again there's a, there's there are, there are accounting rules that govern that. 
but it's a much you're in a much you know stronger position in terms of having those discussions and you have you know much friendlier and easier discussions with your CFO around these issues if you can say hey we've we've posted reserves maybe it's a partial reserve maybe it's a full reserve but um, it just tends to make the conversation a lot less heated uh, yeah, within wh- the company. What, what advice do you have? You, you mentioned like discussions with the CFO. What, what advice would you have for you know tax director, VP of tax for approaching a, a, a CFO discussion? I mean, these are such technical points. I mean, there's the tax technical points. There are these procedural issues. I yeah. mean, these are really complex issues that are frankly hard enough for you know, somebody that's been practicing tax yes. for 20 or 30 years, let alone a CFO that's trying to make one of these really important decisions or ultimately a CEO. But how yeah. would you approach a conversation like that? So I would say every every VP of tax already knows this, but I, I don't think there's a single CF, CFO or God knows CEO uh, who wants to spend a second talking about taxes, right? Again, they're intimidated by it. They don't understand it. Uh, it all feels, you know, very confusing. You combine taxes and litigation, which, again, is something where you know it's uncertain. The outcome could be any number of things. It's, it's not something that a CFO or certainly a CEO wants to take on. They're never in their comfort zone. Again, every VP of tax hearing this podcast already knows that. Um, and so as, the, as a VP of tax or a tax professional within a company, you never would approach something like that lightly because you know it's going to be an unpleasant conversation with the CFO. Having said that, look, if you genuinely believe a regulation is invalid, you do have a, you know, a duty to your shareholders. You have a fiduciary duty as a, you know, a corporate officer within a company to do what you believe is in the best interest of the shareholders. And if the best interest of the shareholders is really to say, I genuinely believe the government is wrong, there's too much on the table from a monetary perspective for us to walk away from this issue, then, yeah, you may very well find that the CFO says, I really don't want to do this. They're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy with you, the tax person, coming in and telling them about it. But they may ultimately conclude that this is the only responsible course of action to take is to disclose it, file the return that way, and prepare for litigation. It's a really, really high tense, you know, very, very tense situation to go through because, again, they're not in their comfort zone uh, and they know they're facing something that they're going to have to talk about again and again and again to shareholders, to analysts, um, to the press around all this stuff. It's just not where they want to be. But they also will recognize that, you know, you can't just walk away from what could be a significant amount of money at stake because you'd really rather not deal with an unpleasant, you know, series of series of discussions with your analysts all right well i I think that that's very very insightful pat um as now that you're an advisor maybe kind of the the last question you know how was your experience you know at treasury and then at ge and now with with pwc how have those experiences kind of impacted your views with respect to invalidity and these issues and what are you trying to advise our clients and, and taxpayers on this issue without getting specific into any particular code sure, section? Sure. So, well, I, I always feel like I, I start with, you know, understanding Treasury's perspective on this. What is it that they're trying to accomplish here? Um, and, and from that perspective, I think I can bring to clients, I do try to bring to clients, you know, this is the way they're thinking about this. This is, you know, and if you want to influence, you know, through the comment process or something like that, there are things that I think can be helpful in that regard. And, you know, if you are dealing with a situation where a regulation is being issued that you 
believe is questionable from a validity perspective and maybe it's retroactively effective and it's affecting a transaction you've already done. If you've got a good set of facts, boy, that's like gold, right? It's gold from a public relations perspective, but it's also great for just walking into Treasury and saying, guys, we did a transaction based on the law that we in good faith believed was the law and you know, here's the result that we got. And the folks within Treasury don't think there's anything, you know, inherently wrong with being tax efficient. Mm. You know, they, I mean, they're all tax practitioners, so they understand that. Um, so I think that's a helpful perspective. But I think the other thing, frankly, that I, um, I'm often having these conversations with clients around this sort of notion of, I actually know what it's like to have those conversations with the CFO. And I know what it's like to be in a circumstance where, you know, the CFO is really, really not happy to be having this meeting with you. Um, and as a result of all that, you know, I feel like I can inform, I can, I've been able to kind of help inform clients around, well, what are the monetary stakes? You know, how do we think about that? You know, uh, what are the alternatives? Uh, and, and if you really are at a point where you're like, look, the amount of money here is so significant that, you know, the threshold question is, do I take this to the CFO or not? Right. I mean, because a lot of these decisions are obviously be made at the tax director level. Simply say, I, I'm I'm look, I'm just not willing to walk into court on this. I know my CFO will have no appetite for this. Mm -hmm. Simply that. But the numbers may be so significant that you, the tax director, say, I can't make this decision. I have to go to the CFO. And I've had a lot of experience in those discussions and going into the CFO with, again, what they will clearly regard as bad news. And so. I think it's kind of okay. Well, what are the what are the relevant parameters from their perspective, and what are the things you can do to you know kind of provide some comfort? Not that this is going to be easy or quick or anything other than really unpleasant. But if that's the path you want to go down, one, be prepared for it. But two, recognize you know that if the numbers are significant, it really may be the only course open to you. So engage with Treasury, engage with stakeholders. I think that's great advice. Well, Pat, we're going to leave it at that. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Pat Brown from our WNTS office for joining me on this episode. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.